You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Hello, please let me see your ticket stubs for the Double Edge Double Bill. Tonight, Catherine Bigelow gets to the point break at Zero Dark Thirty. Each week, Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin! And I am Thomas Mariani, or at least that's uh, my covert name. I can't deliver any other information. It's very classified. Yeah, I don't know what I want to say. For it. It's a very touchy sort of... Uh, I'm Adam Thomas. Well, you know what, Adam? You know what I know you are? You are an FBI agent! So stupid. <laughs> My name is Jimmy Oregon. Some of the famed Oregons. Yes, yes, of course. Yes, so uh, welcome to the Double H Double Bill. Um, if you're new, every single week, Adam and I cover a good and a bad film related to whatever topic we're doing. Um, and we picked our double feature randomly at the end of our last episode. We'll be doing that for next week's episode at the end of tonight's episode, so stay tuned for that. Um, and our topic for today, uh, we decided to do Catherine Bigelow, who is a filmmaker we've talked on and off about doing, especially because we haven't done a lot of female directors, unfortunately. With a lot of female directors, the kind of trouble we've had, Adam, is for the opposites of our show, we like to have at least like something that has you know two good options and two bad options. And unfortunately, just because of generally a lot of Hollywood sexism, female directors don't get a lot of chance to have a very diverse, interesting filmography because, you know, after one mishap it's like nope cutting it out not happening which is a bummer yeah I, you're right and i think you hit it right on the head there and unfortunately it's it's very very accurate you are finding kind of a, a surge of female directors in in genre film especially horror but yeah in mainstream cinema no not really you got like what like sofia coppola Catherine bigelow the wachowskis and i'm hard pressed to really think of a, even two more I would like really Ava DuVernay is sort of coming up right now. I would argue. Of course, of course. Well, yeah, you got her. You got um. Oh God, damn it, Thomas. My mind shot a blank. It was a long day. But uh, what's her name? Wonder Woman. Oh, Patty Jenkins. Patty Jenkins. I mean, that's, Jesus, Wonder Woman. Right out of the gate. That's a pretty big movie out the gate. Well, no, but that's uh, not even her out the gate. That's the thing because she did Monster back in two thousand. No, no, I, right. No, I understand. But I'm saying for Wonder Woman was a massive, massive hit. So it kind right. of gave her sort of blanche a little bit. But to take, like, once again, that's an example where it's like, okay, it took her 14 years just to do a second movie. She did a bunch of TV. Which is between. fucking insane because yeah. Monster was an Academy Award, like, winning film. It was a critical darling. Yeah. Yeah. Fucking men. Right. Dirty old men in Hollywood. Yep. But not us. We're the good guys. Hashtag good guys yeah. on this show. Hashtag good guys. Yep. Topic for today, Catherine Bigelow. Uh, you know, she's somebody who has a very fascinating career, given um, she's, you know, the only, as of yet, um, female director to win a Best Director Oscar for The Hurt Locker, which obviously won Best Picture, amongst other things. I remember being introduced to her through, like, sort of that Oscar campaigning stuff for 
the Hurt Locker. I'm like, oh, I, I don't know who this director is. And then only to find out she had directed things I had seen prior to that, like particularly Near Dark, uh, which is probably the first film of hers I saw. And it's a tremendous movie. Um, that once again, that's a great example of uh, you know a female director doing the horror genre, but also she isn't really exclusive to any specific genre, which I like. She uh, likes to experiment a lot. I want to say Point Break was probably my first Catherine Bigelow film, but I want to say once I saw New- Near Dark, uh, that's when I became aware of who Catherine Bigelow was. And we've covered one of Catherine Bigelow's films previously with Strange Days, which I would argue is her best film. Yes, it's so good. But uh, we're not covering that film, obviously. Uh, we chose at the end of last episode, obviously we have our good and our bad feature for the evening, and uh, uh, we ended up with my good pick, which was Point Break, um, sort of her big breakout, as it were. Um, and then your bad pick, Adam, of Zero Dark Thirty, which is a curious and potentially controversial choice, at least for the acclaim that it received at the time. Yeah, this was a little bit of a tougher one to pick bad for, because... Her couple of bad ones that I would consider really bad, just, there'd be nothing to talk about. No, they're really boring movies. Like, you had K-19, The Widowmaker, yeah. oh, which is God. maybe the most boring movie I've ever seen. And then even, like, The Weight of Water, which is a movie no one's heard of. Exactly. <laughs> like, I went through so, all of I mean, her films just, like, last year, and, like, those were the two. I'm just like, I, I don't even know what I would say about either of these. Right, exactly. So it's So I had to pick one that... Well, I don't necessarily think is a bad movie, but it's not one of her best, and there's at least more to talk about. No, that's true. If anything, yeah. The length gives you enough to talk about. Right. Well, we'll get into all of uh, that with our our two features here, maybe. Uh, but first, let's get into our good feature, Point Break. The ultimate rush. Nothing that comes close to it. It's not tragic to die doing what you love. You want the ultimate got to be willing to pay the ultimate price. You want to nail the bank robbers and be a big hero? Definitely. Fear causes hesitation. It's going to be a great day, Johnny. Adios, amigo! So a Point Break came out on July 12th, 1991. Um, before this point, Catherine Bigelow had made a couple movies, um, like Near Dark, for example, or Blue Steel, neither of which were, like, extremely popular at the time, but Point Break was a surprise, really big success, uh, was only made for $24 million, made 83.5, so a solid sort of sleeper hit in its own right, and, um, what I find so interesting about Point Break and why I decided to sort of have it for the good choice is not just that it's, like, a fun early 90s action movie, but it's one that has so many interesting layers to it, not just in terms of the actual film, but even, like, the careers of a lot of the people in it, um, it's, it's, because this is the first big action film for Keanu Reeves, who we've discussed many times on the show before. Um, and it, it's very much like his sort of breakout after being Ted. Like, this is the same year as Bogus Journey, which is interesting, because it feels sort of like the big nexus point from him going to this to what would later lead to The Matrix and all that other stuff. Um, it's the last really big movie Patrick Swayze was in, really, because uh, he was coming off of the big sort of, like, Dirty Dancing and Roadhouse kind of, like, bit and Ghost, obviously. Was Ghost prior to Point Break? A year prior, 1990. Really? Yeah. I thought Ghost was after. Wow. Look at you. Always bringing something new to my mind. Right. And and also, of course, I think most importantly, we can both agree on this. Um, It's the movie that sort of defined the rest of Gary Busey's career. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. yeah <laughs> because say... this is not the first movie after the motorcycle accident, but the first one where he went crazy, pretty much. Yeah, no, he was, yeah, he was a maniac. 
Uh, I mean, arguably not as well. No, I don't think it's arguable, but not as crazy as he's ultimately became. But yes, this was sort of the start of the Buccenaissance, if you want to call it that. Well, but also, this was the point where you're just like, oh wow, that's a fun affect. I'm sure like this is just a really good character choice. Like, oh no, he's just that crazy. No, that's, <laughs> just, just, that's just him. <laughs> this is him now. After that, yeah. after that motorcycle accident. <laughs> Um, but, but yeah, so I actually didn't discover this movie until, as I kind of mentioned, I went through all that Catherine Bigelow's movies and I hadn't seen this one. I'd always heard about it, particularly from like a hot fuzz, of course, Uh where Nick Frost mentions this in Bad Boys 2 is the greatest films ever made. He might not be wrong, technically. Um, if you really think about it, not necessarily, no. Um, and, uh, so I was aware, especially of the sort of moment that he references with shooting the gun in the air in defiance yeah. and all that other shit. Um, so I always just thought like, oh, it's probably just some kind of like over the top 90s action movie. And it's that, but it's so much more, Adam. Uh, yeah. Uh, I was, like I said, but a babe in the woods when I first saw it. Right around when it came out is when I saw it. So I was eight or nine years old. It had a stigma for some reason. I always remembered it being controversial. Like it was so violent and it's really not. I mean, it's violent. But it's not gory. No. But it's just, it's such a badass movie. And you instantly get why, like, Keanu would sort of become enamored with uh, Patrick Swayze. Like, I want to be cool with that guy, too. And, but, yeah, there's so many layers. You got the, the the romance angle with Lori Petty. You got everything going on with Johnny and crazy-ass Gary Busey. You got the whole thing with Bodie's gang. Like, is it them that's pulling the robberies? Obviously, like I said, it's a lower budget, but it's it's filled to the brim with with nuance, really cool shots. Like, dude, the fucking skydive scene alone. Oh my god! Like, you watch it even now, and you're like adrenaline starts going. It's so well done. The chase scene is great. There's genuine tension, like when they're doing the bank robbery. Uh, you get, you really actually do get behind the Keanu Reeves character, even though, look, Keanu Reeves is not a fantastic actor, and he, this is definitely when he was even worse than he is now. I mean, look, he's young, dumb, and full of cum. Right. But you get behind him. It's a cool movie. Well, yeah, I think what's so cool about it to me, really, is just that, like, on the on the basic level, like, it, this definitely feels like this was a script that Catherine Bigelow, and we should mention, we didn't talk about him and her sort of, like, career history, but uh, James Cameron produced this movie, and they, at the time, um, were on the rocks of their marriage. Like, they had been married for, like, the late 80s, and I believe this was right before they divorced was this movie. Um, But he did participate, he was, like, a producer on this movie, and he also did, apparently, some rewrites with Catherine Bigelow, and this feels like a script that they found that was amongst, like, probably a bunch of other, like, you know, late 80s um, sort of attempts at doing, like, a big action movie with FBI agents and shit. And they're like, okay, let's take this and make it more of something. Because on paper, this movie's so fucking stupid. <laughs> Just, like, this premise of, like, oh, they're trying to track down the greatest bank robbers of all time and they're surfers? It sounds like a movie that, like, a guy in a boardroom would think kids would think is cool at this time. But then when you see it in the form that Catherine Bigelow and Cameron and everybody else eventually made it into, it's this fascinating movie that's sort of like the general structure of any of these kind of like late 80s, early 90s action movies, but also not afraid for these characters to kind of be a bit more emotionally abrasive and also have severe flaws to them. Like, I think Catherine Bigelow knows that Johnny Utah is not a smart dude and not a good FBI agent, 
but really leans into like, okay, but let's actually have him kind of live in that, you know, kind of failure and regret and shittiness. And I think that's what makes her sort of distinct from a lot of other filmmakers of this time, especially, is that she's someone who isn't afraid to have, especially like her male characters, really show off that like, oh no, they can be vulnerable and weak and shitty, when even when they're in the middle of doing some big elaborate chase sequence. Yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely. This was a movie when I was a kid, you know, or a young preteen or even an early teenager, where it was just so fucking awesome. This is a this is a perfect sort of gateway movie. If you have kids, like younger kids, I'd say, you know, between 10 and 13 or interested in action movies that you liked growing up, I'd say this is a really good choice to put on. It's got bad language, but that's pretty much it. I mean, there is also some nudity and some incredibly weird yeah. moments of violence. No, I'm saying it's it's no kid's going to get scared by this movie, or I don't. At least I don't think it's not like RoboCop or Predator or something like that. You throw it on, they're going to fucking shit their pants. As let's put it this way: if you started them on like PG Future 13, and you want to get into R, I think Point Break's a good one to start with. Yeah, sort of fits around like that preteen to early teen kind of point where you would transition them to that point. Yeah, you would think. I saw Robocop at the theater. (laughs) Well, and look how great you turned out. (laughs) Yeah, We're both wonderful people. Right, yes, exactly. I saw Terminator 2 at the ring. Jesus Christ. Right, we all turned out great. I agree to a similar extent that, like, it definitely has, like, it skirts some of these boundaries, but at the same time, I I don't think it ever becomes too excessive with it. Like, it only has, like, these big bursts. Like, I honestly forgot until I rewatched this about the bit where, during the raid sequence, where Keyes gets his foot exploded literally yeah right exactly and that's i think the goriest scene in the movie but for some reason that scene always like sort of stuck out to me and i remembered i don't know if it's because it was anthony kiedis or how he reacts to it or what but it's pretty visceral no it is it's really sick especially because there's like a big close-up on that particular bit and it feels like something that's just kind of like picked up in the moment right and i mean he's screaming his ass off you don't really need to get too in depth with any of the other gang members you kind of get it mm-hmm. like the other surfers they, there was enough there of them to understand who they are to the group like james lagrosse you know from phantasm 3 and everything he was in fucking everything he's just a weaselly little fuck like mm-hmm. and you get it though that's all you need you just need a couple little interactions here and there with him or like homeboy when they when he goes into the party and he's like dancing in johnny's face like, yeah, you get it. This guy's a prick, too. All of the surfers besides Patrick Swayze are pricks. Right, and I think even, like, you get that with, obviously, like, a lot of the types that you have in this movie, even on the FBI side, like John C. McGinley, who we're, mm-hmm. we're big fans of, great character actor, obviously, showing up. Dr. Cox himself, um, in this case, when he shows up as the FBI director, uh, he's very much a type who's just like, oh, hey, no caffeine, no sugar, uh, and you better not be doing anything else. Enough. He's very much a, a type in terms of the chief who's going to get on their ass. Um, but you don't necessarily need a lot more from him, as opposed to the people you need more from are, like you mentioned, Bodie or Johnny Utah. You know, like Gary Busey to some extent, uh, and then you get some character flourishes, like his love of Calvin and Hobbes and Meatball Subs, which is tremendous, yeah. of course. And then also, I would say, uh, we haven't mentioned her that much, but Lori Petty as Tyler. It's her, it's her best, yeah. Well, yeah, it's her best, I would agree. Um, but what I think I like about that relationship she has with Johnny Utah is that it feels so interesting in terms of, like, kind of feeding into Catherine Bigelow's interest in especially sort of, like, um, androgynous characters, I would say. Like, her and Keanu Reeves aren't really that 
different looking, honestly, which I think is so interesting for their relationship. They're shot in very similar ways. Like, I like the fact this movie is very much of, like, a female gaze. There are bits of nudity and stuff like that, but there's a lot of man-ass in this movie. Very naked Keanu, especially up to this point. Like, you see Keanu pubic hair at a certain point, which is interesting. Yeah. Um, Carpet smash the drapes. Right. So she likes showing that often, even with, like, a Lori Petty, who almost has, like, a similar kind of, like, look and tone to her body. But in a way that it doesn't ever, like, really turn down on either. Like, they, they are both attracted to each other. They're both very sexualized. She's not just eye candy, and she's not just a romance angle to be a romance angle. Like, there's actually weight to her character, too. Like, yeah, she's kind of turns out to be the, you know, the damsel in distress sort of I sort of character, because obviously with what happens to her and everything. But still, though, she's not just one note. You feel the betrayal, especially when she finds out about yeah, who Johnny actually you, is. You really do. And, and honestly, in the hands of maybe a, uh, a male director, I don't think you'd have that much nuance with her character because it is kind of a paper-thin character. But she gives her a lot to do. Yeah, I really like the dynamic that builds between those two. And uh, I think it also even weirdly works as well with like the Bodie and uh, Johnny Utah relationship as well. There does feel like a, very much a bromance that like, like escalates into like, some homoerotic territory. But at the same time, there's a lot of weird different angles you can take from especially as even like Bodie being almost like a serial killer kind of toying with mm-hmm. uh, Johnny to a certain extent. I also like there's there's a lot of different layers to it that make it once again much more than just sort of, sort of like the attitude that a lot of people gave. I think that's what I kind of stayed away from it when I was younger because I just heard like oh it's like a big dumb action movie of this period and it's like whatever. This has a lot more nuance than I think a lot of people gave it credit for at the time. And you you see a lot of especially with like Bigelow's direction how this feels distinctive compared to other movies of the era. Oh yeah, even other Keanu Reeves action movies. I mean, it's helmed by someone who you can tell is that she's earned her spot. Uh, it feels very much like a, look, I can do it just as well, if not better than you sort of movie. And that's why, you know, Point Break has stood the test of time. I mean, it's one of Keanu Reeves' best uh, action films, especially the early era, like, you know, pre-Matrix. And it's one of Patrick Swayze's best movies. I mean, she knew what she was doing and she did it very, very well. She took a concept, like we already said, sounds silly. Like a bunch of guys in a boardroom maybe doing a bunch of cocaine. What if the bank robbers were surfers? You know, and and, and that lead FBI used to be a football player. They all know him because he was famous, but now he's injured. Like, you know, he's got a lot to prove. Like, his partner's a big, fat, dumpy dude who likes meatball subs. Like, it just sounds so stupid. But she took such a simple sort of run-of-the-mill 80s action sort of plot and really made it something endearing and special. And I don't think you'd get that out of anybody else who really wasn't trying to prove that they could do it. Right, yeah, and I think another thing that makes this distinctive, especially like a lot of these movies were set in L.A. around this time, this is one of the few that feels like it's actually drenched in the sun. Oh, no. Could you imagine like if Tony Scott did this? I think it would be somewhere around similar. That's the only other director who I could think could do some of that same effect. I think you'd get very last boy scouty, but maybe, maybe I'll give you a maybe on that. And even that's being generous in terms of like the Keanu, especially action movie around this time. I think the best example of what would be like studio boiler plate, but still very well done. is like a speed. 
Like, I would feel it would be somewhere, like, oh, yeah. below even, like, a speed in terms of the way it looks. Like, John DeBont's a really good cinematographer, but that movie doesn't feel, like, that distinctive in terms of how it looks from, like, a lot of other action movies around the same period. This feels more in the way of, like, a Tony Scott movie where it does feel like the it's really drenched in the sun and you feel, like, the times of day feel distinctive. Like, even, this is one of the few times where Day for Night doesn't bother me with the big surfing sequence they have. Where, like, yeah, it's clearly Day for Night. But it looks in this weird way where it almost feels like it's this weird twilight effect for it. It feels like yeah, it's it makes almost like an ethereal feel to it. It's very weird. It makes surfing feel like it's this own weird distinctive universe. Then that's why these people are so entranced with it. That's what it is, bro. I mean, bro, clearly, bro. Totally. Bra. Right. right. <laughs> um, you wear a bra, bro? Anyway, <laughs> and but also even some of the other stuff, like you mentioned, the whole chase sequence, which is tremendous, and many movies have ripped it off severely. Um, in which Keanu chases after um, Patrick Swayze in his... We haven't even mentioned the Dead Presidents thing, and the, especially his Ronald Reagan mask is so, so creepy looking. So good. It's so fucking creepy. And, and, and it leads to all this like weird destruction going through different people's houses, uh, a dog getting thrown. <laughs> I was just going to say, it's the only movie I could think of where a dog is thrown at somebody being who's chasing them. As a weapon, yes, it's it's tremendous. Yep. Um, and then, of course, the the great iconic shot of him of uh, Patrick Swayze in the Ronald Reagan mask with the gasoline thing and like a flamethrower makeshift thing is going on. This feels almost like L.A. graffiti come to life at points with stuff like that. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. I never, you know, thought of it that way. I, I got to be honest with you. This is the first time that I'm having an actual like sort of in depth uh, breakdown conversation about Point Break. Not that. I don't enjoy it. I, I guess, honestly, as many times as I've talked about this movie, I've never gotten that into depth about it, which is nice. It's sort of like rewatching it, you know, looking at it for different sort of ideas. But one thing I will say, he probably should have shot Patrick Swayze, right? Because it was after that that they went and kidnapped Lori Patty and all that. So if you'd have just shot him. Right. But I think in other movies where that feels a lot more kind of forced, I totally believe it out of Johnny Utah, who oh, consistently too, no, is too. shown to not be a competent like cop in any way. And, and dude, I mean, he fucks up almost from day one. Yeah. Like, he, he instantly inserts himself. He starts sleeping with somebody. Like, you really shouldn't do that. He's going on little, these weird things with them. Like, he's just being, he's getting too close to them. So, yeah, I, I kind of get it, too. And, you know, like you said earlier, there's kind of a tinge of a homoerotic sort of relationship there. But I, I don't feel it as much as, or, or with Patrick Swayze to uh, Keanu as Keanu to, to Patrick Swayze. But Keanu, it's like Keanu Reeves got a crush. Right, and I think to to Patrick Swayze feels more like at best like Big Brother the yeah. Little Brother kind of relationship, and at worst like once again toying with somebody younger in this weird almost serial killer fashion about trying to get like the cop on his particular like evil side. Bigelow displays a lot of this through like these big elaborate sort of like machismo action beats of like, hey, we're gonna do some uh, fucking skydiving, or hey, we're gonna go surfing, or we're gonna have a really weird drug trippy party. <laughs> in our Laguna Beach house. Um, it, it's a movie that smells of Corona the whole time. Like, even more so than A Fast and Furious, which totally ripped this movie off, obviously. Um, it, it feels like it's drenched in, like, the a sort of beach beer. Oh, yeah, no, totally. It's gross. Like, there's parts of this movie yeah. that are gross. Like you said, that dirty, sweaty, drug-fueled, just got done playing football slash rave slash whatever the fuck's going on. Like I said, a homeboy dancing right in Johnny's face. Like, what's up? What's up? What's up? What are you going to do? Like, it's so gross. You can smell that room. 
Like, it's yeah. so nasty. And you know these guys all just basically bathe in the ocean. Right. Like, you know that that's their baths. You can taste the sea salt on their backs. Oh, sure. That's why all their hair is crusty and, like, weathered blonde and everything. These guys are just gross, like, basically vagrants. Mm-hmm. But it works. It's perfect. You, that that's why that's what's so good about their characters. They're not these ultra beautiful. Well, Patch Tracy might be, but they're not these ultra like slick, hot, wearing leather, you know, high tech bank robbers. They're a bunch of fucking bums, which is who just got balls. Like they get they have balls to steal these guys. They have no fear. Right. They they have like so much ego that they don't have any of that like actual animal instinct to like protect themselves. They just don't give yeah, a fuck. Yeah, because they don't care. Yeah, they, they don't, just don't care, give a fuck. Right. Like if they die, they die. That's it. Like, I think that's what draws him to Patrick Swayze is that, you know, Keanu Reeves has this kind of animalistic instinct as well to like just shoot first, ask questions later, which is why he has this attraction to, you know, the bony lifestyle and such. Um, I, I I think all that just works so tremendously. Catherine Bigelow is clearly working on so many levels with all that, while also delivering all these big, elaborate set pieces that are awesome. Like, we, we should even mention the, the raid sequence we've kind of danced around. But that's such a perfect example of how to build tension in an action sequence, right down to the lawnmower, which is so tremendous, even though, like, it has yeah. funny, like, bits that are where you're just, like, on paper once again. Like, can they not hear over the walkie-talkie with the fucking lawnmower? <laughs> <laughs> I love that I bit, know. though. I can't hear him! I can't hear him! <laughs> I know, because of a lawnmower. Get the fuck out of here. No, I, I definitely agree. And also, even for, like, she's able to do little subversion things, like we mentioned the nudity of the lady in the shower, I love how that lady, like, her big action beat is she beats the shit out of Keanu while she's naked, and then leaves, and Keanu doesn't get up for a bit. <laughs> he has to, like, really stammer himself back Oh, yeah, no, she, she fucks him up. Yep. Like, she... Whoops, is that she fits perfectly with that gang of psychopaths she's hanging out with? Yes, like she beats the piss out of him. But no, I agree. There is these, there is these not totally in your face moments of like sort of levity, other than the Gary Busey character. Like they, they want you to get it, like a oh this this guy's wild sort of sort of chuckle out of it. There's a lot of moments that let you breathe. Like oh, the, the action is intense. Like, when it's happening, it's fucking, like, adrenaline pumping. Like, let's do, we're going full 10. But then it'll stop, and there'll be a quiet moment. And then it'll go again, and then it'll stop. And you'll have a couple scenes of, you know, the water. And then, you know, it's just, ah. And then, again, and you're like, holy fuck. That, this movie's it, it's hitting every beat that a movie like this should hit. But not forgetting to actually make them characters as opposed to, like, especially around this time, you would get, like, a lot like a lot of Arnold Schwarzenegger vehicles, especially where the, the main hero is, like, inhumanly, amazingly buff badass. And those are fun, but at the same time, I don't think you get as much interesting character stuff as you do with, like, a movie like this. Oh, no, yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. I mean, at all. With any of those sort of major action star movies, there, there is no character development was it and then what there is it's so stupid and forced because they can't they can't fucking act it out you seen steven seagal try to emote oh my lord (laughs) (laughs) good god but uh no well you gotta figure as like i said keanu reeves is pretty in this movie like he's not great it's the ultimate sort of like crux point between ted and neo it feels like the perfect middle ground for me yeah, but I, I honestly think him being balanced against Patrick Swayze, who is just chewing the scenery in this movie. 
He's really fucking good in this. I think it balances out Keanu's character very well. I can't see anybody else. Well, maybe, who knows? But I think it was a perfect sort of combination between the two of them. Like, it just worked out really well. Right, it's a real bummer that Swayze honestly didn't. Because, like, after this, really, the only two things of note are, like, Tu Wong Fu, and then his appearance in Donnie Darko. And, like, that's it, unfortunately. Man, that's fucking crazy to me. I know. Like, he just... God, that's wild. Because he kept appearing in a bunch of schlock that nobody gave a shit about after this. Um, like, let me... I'm going to pull up his filmography now. Yeah, so, <laughs> so after Point Break, you get um, City of Joy and Fatherhood and Three Wishes. Oh, Fatherhood. Oh, no. Black Dog. <laughs> Green Dragon. Oh, One Last oh, Dance. Like, and then you get near the end of his career, he's doing stuff like Fox and the Hound 2 and Christmas in Wonderland. It's it's so sad that dude's career just ended up kind of, like, really dissipating as much as it did. After he had, like I said, a pretty big, like, late 80s to early 90s. Oh, dude, Roadhouse? Yeah. Fuck, man. Ghost next to Ken? These st- like, Steel Dawn? Come on, man. Dirty Dancing? I mean, these are just fantastic movies. Red Dawn. I mean, they're classic classics. Now it's like, like, well, no, I guess not now. That's maybe. Wow, wow, Adam. Hashtag too soon. Wow. <laughs> yeah, sorry. It was, it was only it's only been a, it's only been a decade, Adam. Come on. Yeah, my fault. Sorry, guys. <laughs> yeah, so I apologize to his family who's listening. No, it's just it, it is kind of a shame. I, I wonder. I, I I wonder what the case is there. Was he just not offered anything else, or is it just that? post-point break, he had just such a string of bombs where it just kind of killed his career. I, I think it, that's just unfortunately the case, and it's so bummer, much of a bummer. Especially, I would argue this is my favorite Patrick Swayze performance with Point Break. It has all of his charms, but also a lot more of like the menace that you don't get as much from him, honestly, in some of his other movies. It feels like there's so much nuance to this character, and then at the same time, like I think that's what makes him in the mask work as well as it does, with like the flopping and everything. I think he, he has like a born leader charisma, that has both this like tendency of like, oh, you want to follow him, but also you're worried where he might lead you to. Yeah, no, I agree. That's absolutely my favorite Swayze performance. Uh, Roadhouse might be my favorite Swayze movie just because of how ridiculous well, it is. We're going to talk about Roadhouse at some point. That's a movie worth discussing I mean, in life. <laughs> for, for sure. <laughs> we might um, just do a Roadhouse episode. No, that's just the. It's, well, it well, is both topic. good and bad. It could be for either topic, so we might as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that might not be, you know, bad for a commentary. Oh, keep put, that one in Put a pin in that. But anyway, uh, we've been talking a lot about Point Break. Let's get into our final thoughts. And especially, Adam, uh, would you say this is your favorite of Catherine Bigelow's movies? Or would you still say it's a Strange Days? Uh, it's in my top three. Strange Days is still my favorite. Mm-hmm. This is probably number two. I don't know, man. Near Dark. Fuck. But yeah. this is this is in my top three. It, it's, it's never going to beat Strange Days for me, but it's... Constantly vying between the second and third position. Uh, like I said, I think this is Patrick Swayze's best performance. I think this is a movie that exceeds because of Catherine Bigelow. I think in any lesser hands, it would have just been another, you know, late eighties, early nineties action movie. Probably been like, oh, okay, yeah, that's fine. Like I said, like with the last Boy Scout and stuff like that, where people are like, oh yeah, that movie. But people remember Point Break. They like Point Break. They love Point Break. Uh, I think it's an absolute uh, gem of uh, just a cool sort of action movie that's got a lot more to it than people give it credit for or expect. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that this sort of got, like, a more of a critical reappraisal around the time of, like, Hurt Locker. Um, because it feels like it was a movie that was very much, like, of its time in a way that people were just like, oh, that's silly point break. You know, Keanu, all this other stuff. But then when you really look back on it, there's a lot more interesting stuff about um, male insecurity and masculine sort of, like, uh, overcompensation in the middle of also a movie that's really just fucking awesome at the same time. It has that great mix of both those things. It's got, well, you know, so many great weird nexus points for all these people as you know in their careers and it has even like a bit of that james cameron charm i would argue as well that was mixed in with Catherine bigelow's really excellent unique direction to make her not just like get this through nepotism she's not just like oh she was james cameron's wife it's like no she actually had a lot more to her that made her so distinctive and interesting at this particular time but yeah it's a tremendous movie that if you maybe uh declined to watch because you thought oh it's just dumb keanu stuff don't worry that's some of that's in there like particularly we yeah. didn't talk about this but early on the bit where he does the training exercise perfectly and they're like great job utah you pass and he's like the thumbs up and everything. Perfect image of, like, dumb Keanu. (laughs) Just, like, a shit-eating grin. Um, It's got a bit of that, but also it has a bit more context to it. It's got a bit more interesting flair than you would expect. And speaking of interesting flair, here's an ad for an ESO show that you can queue up right after our podcast that has plenty of great flair. It was Sean and the podcast about mankind. The Soulforge podcast was a dream-given form. Its goal? To prevent fear by creating a place where humans and aliens could work out their differences peacefully. It's a pod for all, with topics including love, loss, sex, dating, and so much more. Humans and aliens wrapped in the ESO network, all alone in the night. It can be a dangerous place, but it's our last best hope for peace. The year is 2020. The name of the place, Soulforge Podcast. So now let's get into our bad feature, Zero Dark Thirty. 20 detainees recognize that photo. No birth certificate, no cell phone. You guys are ghost. The whole world's gonna win in on this. I want targets. Oh my god, is that what I think it is? Where was the last time you saw Bin Laden? So, Zero Dark Thirty came out um, on December 19th, 2012. Um, and to get a bit of context for Bigelow's career up to this point, after, you know, she had a point break, um, we ended up getting Strange Days, which was uh, a, a great film, but ultimately was not very successful whatsoever. Um, and then a couple years in between, she does then she does Weight of Water, which no one's heard of, like we said before. And then after that, she did K-19, The Widowmaker, which was sort of an infamous bomb, like cost $100 million to make, it didn't make nearly that much. So then there was a big fallow period after that as well. And then we got The Hurt Locker, which was a very small independent, I think is still the lowest grossing Best Picture winner of all time. But that got a lot of attention really? for Bigelow. Yes. The artist made more money than the Hurt Locker. Yeah, I think by a barely a bit. <laughs> okay. I think they're, they're not, in, like, to be fair, around the same company. Like, I believe the second lowest grossing is Moonlight, which we've covered on the show previously. Son of a bitch. And so that got her the carte blanche to do Zero Dark Thirty, which, um, if you you weren't aware, is um, based on the sort of manhunt that was after Osama bin Laden. Rehistory, if you're not aware of what who Osama bin Laden is and what that all meant. Um, all the well, there's, there's, a there's a whole other problem. There's a whole lot. We should probably also emphasize at the start of this, um, we apologize if we get things wrong, because we probably are with this real life event, um, about like actual like basics of the history and stuff like that. We're not 
experts on this whatsoever. No, not at all. I know what I've been told and right. what I've seen in movies. That's it. Right. Like Zero Dark Thirty, which interestingly only came out about 18 months after Osama bin Laden was confirmed killed by President Barack Obama. And the movie actually started production as sort of a movie that was almost like a Zodiac, but about Osama bin Laden where it was just going to be about this woman trying to hunt him down, but it's like, well, I guess we'll never find him. And then they were, like, literally getting pre-production through and casting people, and then Obama famously said, we got him. And they're like, oh, let's restructure the whole movie now. Yeah, you know, the thing is... All right. Look, this is a, a really long movie. Yes. It's about two hours and 40 minutes. It's it's incredibly, incredibly long. There are incredible dry parts to the movie. But after rewatching it for this show, I gotta be honest, I kind of dug it. It's not a perfect movie. It is, like I said, it's super fucking long. So you gotta strap in. And there is a lot of sort of cameo baiting parts, which always drives me nuts. Why is that him? Like, there is no need for it to be that actor. You could have gotten anybody. But whatever. But I'll tell you, it's my favorite Jessica Chastain performance. I think she's fucking dynamite in it. I'll say for for me, I remember when this came out, because um, it uh, was obviously like, oh, it's a follow-up from the Hurt Locker you know, director, and it got a lot of right. sort of, uh, even like Academy attention. It was nominated for uh, Best Picture, Best Actress, for Chastain, Best Original Screenplay, and Best Editing. And interestingly, it won Best Sound Editing, and it tied with Skyfall. And that the tying of any award has only happened six times in the history of the Academy Awards. I didn't realize that happened. I did remember around that, I believe it was Mark Wahlberg announced it. And it was so much funnier where it's just like, it's a tie. I don't know what to tell you. It's a tie. Look, two of them. So how the fuck does that work? They both get an Oscar then? They both get an Oscar. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah. <laughs> like I said, I didn't even know that was a thing. I know, okay. yeah. It's, it's like I said, only happened six times. That's the most recent time <laughs> when that happened. Um, but but yeah, and I remember watching it at the time and being kind of like, okay, I don't get what all the fuss was about. Like rewatching it now, I get it more obviously at the time, given like I said, eighteen months after Osama bin Laden was confirmed killed. And if you didn't live through or re- remember much of like the sort of period between nine eleven and him being caught. It always felt like it was this kind of like drive. Like we always like we always had an enemy. We always had a specific yeah. person we thought we could pin it down on. Um, and the movie kind of tries to wrestle with that idea, with especially its ending about like, oh, was it really worth all that trouble? Um, but I think with even the time now, it feels so weird that like I, I at least got more of like why people were behind it at that particular moment. And now watching it, it feels like this is like a really well put together procedural in a way that I can respect, but mainly feels kind of like very rote, despite how, you know, vast and convoluted this entire operation actually probably was. Oh, no, I definitely agree. It's, it's in fact, uh, I came home and put on the last 20 minutes and my wife watched it with me and she's like, Oh my God, this is so tense. Cause it is when them, when they're storming the compound at the end, it's the best part of the movie just cause of the way it's shot. And it's very tense. Uh, but I told her, I was like, yeah, this is like, last 20 minutes out of the previous two hours and 20 minutes. And she, she's like, oh, 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 so is it like this, the whole movie? Like, no, you couldn't watch a movie that's that intense for three hours. It's a lot of people in fucking office buildings it's and just procedural. like files. Yeah, it's completely a procedural. Yeah, it really is. It helps that it's anchored by some really good performances. 
Like uh, Jason Clark is absolutely fantastic in this movie too. I will say the opening torture scene is still hard for me to watch. Mm-hmm. Like it's uncomfortable for me, uh, especially because you know what they're showing is probably a tenth of what actually type of shit was going on. You know, in the grand scheme of things, I, I kind of appreciate it a little more. And I think it's for the same exact reason you said. I think when I was going into it the first time I saw it, I think I was expecting more of what the last 20 minutes are, the whole movie. Not a political sort of procedural, which is exactly what they give you. I think for me, I think my, my biggest problem, especially upon this watch, is just that I, I talked about with Point Break. And I think a lot of Catherine Bigelow's other movies kind of have this, even like The Hurt Locker. Um, has this where it's about like these characters who have a lot of like engaging emotional drive in the middle of like the, this behavior they're doing. But I think this feels so much more procedural in a way that makes it feel so much more cold. And I, I think something that supports that is I looked up, there's a, there's a great article I would recommend from uh, Pacific Standard Magazine.com um, in which they interview someone, uh, Nada Bakos, who was actually a CIA anti-terrorism agent around the same time. And it's a great article where she goes into a lot of depth about, like, how this kind of, like, related to compared to the people she knew and stuff at who were working around this time. And she says at one point, um, in the film, none of the agency characters were empathetic or exhibited much human emotion at all. They were emotionally callous, cold, un- unwavering at the sight of brutal beatings and nonplussed by intense situations. Or they quickly became like that. And she talked a lot about how basically, like, the torture scenes and all this other stuff don't really exhibit a lot of, like, the interesting humanity you would have with these characters. And I feel a lot of that watching this movie. I don't feel like Jessica Chastain, despite her best efforts or any of the other people around them, have that much like emotional engrossing stuff that I get out of other better Catherine Bigelow movies. For me, it just feels like, oh, we're just kind of getting from like point A to point B to point C in a way that both doesn't do much for these characters or these actors or even just in general, like the procedural element of this makes like the actual effort to hunt down Bin Laden feel like it's like one person trying to do all of this in a way that feels kind of forced to me. I I can see where you're coming from, and I don't necessarily disagree, but I kind of took it, you know, she was recruited out of high school for the CIA. She's been working on this one thing for 12 years. She's lost colleagues. She's lost the ability to really have any sort of meaningful relationship at all. And I mean, she's just completely focused. Now, I will say, like the spec ops guys or whatever you want to call them at the end, or most of the characters were just sort of faceless characters. Like they, they had nothing to them. Right, uh, but okay. I think there was a lot of. La- I do think there was a many, actually, quite a few layers to uh, Chast- Chastain's character in this. I think her performance has those layers. I don't know if the character on the page does. But I think that's the point of the character, though. Right, I get that's the point of the character, but at the same time, I don't really feel that much emotional investment, especially when oh. like bigger things are going on around her, like the Jennifer Eel character, who ha- who is this person who like has a life and has a family and all this other stuff, and says, like, no, oh, no, you could have all of this and still do be like a CIA agent doing what I do. And then she gets blown up after a certain point. I get that the idea is supposed to be like, oh, she's like so callous and she has to like move past this and get beyond this. But at the same time, the way they really pay that off, I don't really feel, because after, you know, this big elaborate raid sequence you're mentioning at Osama Bin Laden's place. They come back to her and she, like, sees the the body. And then she, like, has, like, the movie one tear. And I just feel like that feels yeah, so much more yeah. hollow to me in a way that, like, a Catherine Bigelow usually doesn't have. Like, a character would be, you know, even through all this stuff, would be having, like, big emotional fits that feel human. I don't feel like much of these characters are, like, really human as much as, like, stock sort of, like, procedural badass types. Like, your favorite Kyle Chandler... 
who I'm sure you loved seeing in this movie. Oh, for fuck's sake. I know. As soon as you, oh man, I can't stand that fucking guy, Thomas. Although I will say he didn't bother me in this. He was actually pretty good in this. Okay. He was all right. He was, he was a prick. But he's, but he is like a stuff shirt. It's like everybody's sort of like the John C. McGinley character in Point Break, and nobody is really yeah. like any of like the actual interesting emotional characters. Except I will say my favorite of like any of the scenes with Gandolfini when he shows up he's are tremendous. So fucking good. Oh my god, how good was he in this movie? Oh, dude, the lunch scene. The lunch scene. The lunch scene. That's what I'm talking about. Oh, the lunch scene so good. is a great example where like he's being playful and she's not responding to it as much. Like he's respecting her. Tell her like, no, you're fucking really good at what you do. I like you. There's the bit where he talks about Sal, you, you haven't really done much else for us. Just this, yep, just this. And she's like, huh? Wow, you're really good at what you do. I love your Gandolfini, but Oh yeah, it's per- it's perfect, right? Yeah, yeah you're really good at what you do. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, clearly, look how many people have come up to me and just said, "Thomas, I'm sorry, I've never seen an episode of The Sopranos." As an entire, right, it's you like describe it to him. You got to be like, "Yeah, go well, fuck yourself." Fuck well, no, you. no, well, no. Everybody tells me that, even though I also have never seen an episode of The Sopranos. So it's do just people like, really come up to you and tell you that? I've had that happen at least like five or six times. Oh, it's really <laughs> weird. <laughs> Dude, I'm sorry. I've never listened to Dropkick Murphys. <laughs> like, I don't fucking care. Get the fuck away from me. <laughs> Boondock Saints, bro. I keep meaning to catch on. I keep meaning to catch on, man. It's, you know, life. <laughs> but anyways. It's a really weird thing. But I, I really love like their, their interaction because it feels like, once again, it's like these characters who are clearly like in all these boardroom settings have this big kind of, like, um, moments of, like, actual tension about, like, oh, my, we're covering like, a big, serious thing, doing something super serial. And I feel like the other people, like a Mark Strong, who's great, I always love seeing Mark Strong, but it feels so much more, like, stagey. And it feels so much more like yeah. this is, we're performing and we're not actually living in this moment, despite how much we're also trying to live in this moment because oh. we're trying to make it super realistic. No, I, I agree with you on, all, on most, on pretty much all of that. But with Mark Strong's character in... in specifically it almost feels like he's playing it like they told him like no you're, you're gonna have a big arc to this because there's scenes where you sort of get the idea where he's going to have like a genuine sort of moment with his character and they really don't ever pay it off like you get the one part where where he's with what steven delane or whatever in the hallway right and you're like oh and no it's kind of it and then you never see him again that's the thing. It's a movie that it feels like it wants to have its cake and eat it too with like, no, we researched all this for super serial. We're down to like what, what we know ex- exactly about like all this stuff. Here's all of our factoids and pinpoints, but also it wants to have the big movie moments. So it never quite balances out for me. It just kind of feels like right. stay in a lane. Like, honestly, I would have probably preferred the movie that would have come out like before we caught Osama. And it was more about like the Zodiac thing of like trying to search for something, but never finding it. I do agree with you. I think that would have made for a much honestly if this movie would have been all procedural and it was something like that like zodiac uh i would have been down for sure uh because you know have moments of tension and stuff like but they could do that with suicide bombing and things like that there is still those moments of tension where they you know without them having to ultimately pay off with obama but uh i agree with you i think that that could be a cool movie uh granted it'll never happen with good reason but um 
yeah, that, that I, I think that would have been a better movie. I do agree. Because it feels like so much of that procedural stuff is building up to like an endless sort of thing of like, I guess we might never catch him. We don't know what's going to happen, mm-hmm. all this other stuff. And then we have the raid sequence, which I think is very technically well put together, but also yeah. feels kind of soulless to me in that way. Well, against the rest of the movie. Yeah. That's the thing. Against the rest of you're watching two and a half, two hours and 10 minutes of procedural, and then you get like a 30 minute night vision scene, you know storming of a fortress you're like well this is completely different than anything that's been in the movie you know you get a helicopter crash you get really brutal sort of gunplay like it's matter of fact like right in your face they're shooting these people and yeah it's sort of against type for the rest of the film i do agree it feels like it should be part of a different movie or was part of a different and i also feel like it does it's like some of this sort of middle eastern othering that we get got from a lot of movies around this time that certain other ones avoid with like sort of like Iraq war era movies. Like even the Hurt Locker, I would argue has that where like the little boy and like the one guy who's the suicide bomber, you get at least a bit of like humanity out of those other characters versus they're all very much treated in a way that's just kind of like, once again, they're othering, they're like either obstacles in the way that we have to manipulate or some of this other stuff. It just feels very much like it's also a movie of this specific era too. It's an interesting time capsule, but it doesn't like really engross me nearly as much as a lot of other Bigelow's movies. Like even a lot of people had a lot of issues with Detroit a lot more than this particular movie. But I would say at least in the middle of those like really tense situations, I felt at least like all those people were human characters, even though I didn't necessarily agree with all the decisions being made filmmaking wise. I at least felt far more emotionally invested there than I do throughout any of this movie. Yeah, I I can't. I really want to disagree with you just to disagree with you, but I don't think I can. We need conflict, Adam. Conflict. Come on. That's what sells the podcast downloads. I mean, like, obviously I picked this as a bad movie. Yes. Uh, and I did preface, you know, I don't never really thought it was a bad movie, but just compared to other ones. And I still think it firmly sets at where I thought it was already. Like it's an, it's a run of the mill average movie. It's not her best. It's not her worst. But I just got maybe a little bit more of appreciation for it this time. Like I said, I'm not a big Jessica Chance Stain fan to begin with. Like, I think she's fine. But I did really, really sort of enjoy her in this movie. I, I thought she was really good. I saw the complexities of the character that maybe you didn't see. I don't know if it was her acting or, I don't know, maybe I just I appreciated it a little more than I think you did. I, I get a lot more of the nuances in terms of the frustration, which is sort of the main big emotion everyone has in this movie is frustration, uh, which mm-hmm. I get given like what we're doing here and what we're searching for and what we can't find. Uh, but I think with Chastain, I think what she exhibits is a lot more of sort of that humanity that I don't think is on the page from Mark Bowl, who has been the main screenwriter since Hurt Locker for Catherine Bickle and I think is her biggest albatross to bear is that he loves doing these, like, very clinical, like, mapping out of these stories that don't necessarily need to be this mapped out to me at certain points. Um, But I feel like Chastain does an incredible job of at least, like, getting you immersed in, like, individual moments. Like the stuff with Gandolfini, or even when she's, like, talking with Mark Duplass, um, which is another weird person that pops up in this movie <laughs> the fucker from the league shows up um or even like her um doing stuff like writing on the the glass about stuff like hey it's been 100 days it's been this many days what the fuck are we gonna do now like i think she does a really great job of getting you to sort of like have some humanity for this character who's a composite of so many other people um especially when like a lot of these movies do that where it's like oh this person is actually like five different people she feels like she's coalesces all these traits into one singular person in a believable way yeah god damn it (laughs) 
I mean, again, I can't disagree with you on any of it. I think, I think you, everything you're saying is 100% accurate. Just for some fucking reason, it hooked me this time. So, I don't know, man. I don't know what the fuck you want from me. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll ask directly then. Um, what do you think uh, sort oh, of makes good. this stick out to you in terms of like there's the procedural element and stuff like that, but what do you felt made you like really engrossed maybe on an emotional level with it? Something that I'm not maybe seeing. I guess I never really took into account just the impact that something like finding and killing uh, someone like Osama bin Laden would actually have on a person or a sort of just group of people in, in comparison to the bigger picture. Uh, like even after the guy, he does it. It's the, I can't think of his name either from like Winter Soldier and shit. And they're like, do you realize what you just did? Yes. And he walks down to the room and he's like, you know, I, I got the target on, on the third, third floor. And it's like, I, I just, it just little nuances like that and things like that. I, no, I, I can agree with you on bits like that. I don't think it's like devoid totally of like attempts at this kind of like a emotional like shock almost about the characters. Mm-hmm. I wish if anything we got more of that and we weren't stuck in like sort of like day to day bureaucracy of not even just like people in the office, but people like actually committing this particular action. Um, with like Joel Edgerton and Chris Pratt, which I remember that was also a big thing. This is where Chris Pratt was not fat anymore. It's where he got buffed for the first time. Right, right. And then we got Guardians after this and Jurassic World and all that other stuff. And I I just think like these are all the really good actors that I think bring a lot of that sort of nuance to these characters. What did you think of Jason Clark in this? I like I like him in this one. I just have like to me my biggest problem with that character though is it's another example where he's treated as like oh I'm tough as nails in the middle of this horrible torturing situation and we have to have like the monkey thing is what convinces him not to do this anymore. It's these it's these yeah, weird things where I like the, 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 it's the thing where like I think the script wants to have like these emotional moments for these characters but it feels weirdly misaimed in a way that doesn't feel that consistent. Um, but I like the Jason Clark in the part. Yeah, I agree. I, I think the, the crux of him quitting that specific thing was a little forced. He's always consistent, but there are certain times when he's really good and he's really good when he is. That's another thing with Chastain. Like I have a similar thing with her and this was sort of the movie where she popped out because she had like a big year in 2011 with like the help and tree of life and take shelter. She'd been in a lot of things, and this was sort of like the big movie where it's like, oh, she could be like one of our next big actresses. Weirdly, this she was nominated for an Oscar right around when she was in the horror movie Mama in, was in theaters. Yes. Right. Yes. Um, but then I think she just kind of like got wasted on mostly about like her popping up in Interstellar. Crimson Peak? I would argue she stands out tremendously in Crimson Peak. I could she's, she's phenomenal in that movie. She's so great. She's doing so much fucking scenery. She, now she's being wasting a lot of stuff like Dark Phoenix or It Chapter 2 that are arguably more high-profile movies, but also just don't utilize her very well at all. Dark Phoenix, good lord. Yeah. Remember we didn't utilize anyone. No. That's, that's very fair. I don't know, it just feels like like her and Clark kind of had a similar attitude because like um, he had like the Apes movie, but then also like the Pet Cemetery, some of the stuff oh. that doesn't utilize him very oh. well. You got to figure he did the Apes movie, which I really thoroughly enjoy. In fact, out of the three of them, I think that's my favorite one. But then it's like he just did a, a string of shit, like Terminator Genesis. What the fuck? Oh yeah, where <laughs> he was John Connor. Oh. Yeah, dude. 
Oh, and then yeah, Pet Cemetery. Just unfortunate because he's really good. I really do like him. Like uh, Lawless, another Jessica Chastain movie. I think right. he's really good. At Around the same time, yeah. Yeah. But anyways, on to Bigelow because we didn't really talk about. It. Do you think it's a well directed film? Um, I think it's a very um, well put together movie, but I just don't feel like a lot of her distinctive, interesting stamps in it at the same time. It feels like this is sort of like her technical exercise around the same way that like her ex-husband was like really into like an avatar, where I think that's a very well sort of like put together movie, but doesn't feel as like emotionally investing for me. I feel the same way kind of about Zero Dark Thirty, but obviously with like a much more grittier aesthetic and all this other stuff. It feels like I can tell she's very interested in what's going on here on like a picking together all the parts, but it doesn't feel like it has all of her best traits to it. And I felt that way about her stuff with Mark Bowl a lot um with like i would say hurt locker is i think the best example of it because there's a lot of that like technical craft about like oh we have to disarm the bombs and we have to do this and that but at the same time there is actual emotional heft to like any of the bomb sequences and the aftermath of it you see like anthony mackie get really fucking pissed off at jeremy renner that weird fight sequence they have and like the um, their bunks where like they pull knives on each other and shit like that there feels like there's this weird emotional like egotistical energy coming off these two, you know, bros in the military kind of coming to fisticuffs with each other over all this stuff they're doing and realizing it's a lot of just, like, the war putting this on them. Versus, I think there's a lot of opportunity to have done that here with just, like, the exhaustion that's going on with all these characters. And I don't feel like the script allows all these characters or even Bigelow to exhibit a lot of that sort of, like, emotional heft being lifted or being, you know, kind of dealt with to any degree. Yeah. I, I guess I kind of agree with you. I think it's a very well shot movie. I think technically it's it's pretty proficient, but I do agree. It, there doesn't there's no sort of stamp on this movie that makes me go that's a Catherine Bigelow movie. I think weirdly we do get that, but it's in certain like smaller sequences, like when Justine first meets with like Joe Edgerton and uh, Chris Pratt. Right, but I'm saying overall, overall, in a two hour and forty minute movie. You know, you might get a tinge here and there, but it doesn't feel like a complete Catherine Bigelow film. It almost feels like whoever directed this might be a fan of Bigelow. Because, uh, again, it's 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 a very run-of-the-mill, procedural, sort of weirdly patriotic sort of American pride film that's ultimately kind of cold. Well, no, but I don't even think it's quite like American pride either. I said weirdly. What I mean by weirdly is the ultimate goal of the film is, you know to get the guy who attacked American soil. But at what cost? No, I, I understand that, but it's still like, whatever it takes, we get it done. We got it done. Right, right, but it also <sighs> wants to have that thing I'm talking about, the what cost element of it, but I don't ever feel like it quite delivers in that. And only for one person. And you're like, okay, I agree. The tear at the end is not enough. No, it feels like we almost should have had a bit more. Like, like my favorite part of Hurt Locker is the bit after he comes back from war and he's, like, just in the middle of grocery shopping and he's like, oh, I guess I can pick out cereal. Fuck, I don't want to do this. Like, that, there's a there's at least, like, a bit more, like, real emotional heft about this guy who just is, like, an adrenaline junkie. He was obsessed, as opposed to, like, a Chastain here. I, you know, I, I've heard plenty of arguments, like, a lot of big praise for this movie. Argues a lot of this very well, but it actually does display a lot of that. I just feel, ultimately, like, this one kind of lacks a lot of, like, what I really am driven to with, like, a Bigelow. And I think after, like, this Detroit was kind of, like, an infamous kind of, like, 
disaster for her in terms of like didn't do very well people were very mixed on it critically i just wish she would kind of like see her out of this mark bowl direction and kind of just do a lot more of the if not the other stuff from before that she was doing at least like do something that feels like a new breath of fresh air for her a new experiment some other like genre she hasn't tackled in either in a while or ever I could see why this was nominated for all the things it was nominated for. I get it because of the subject matter. It makes Oscar baby. Because that's not typically my kind of movie. Like when I do watch sort of procedures like you're talking about, or like these, these kind of like political, like machination back and forth kind of movies, the ones I tend to prefer tend to be the ones that are highly exaggerated and elevated. Like even as much as Oliver Stone does weird shit, like a JFK is procedural, but also does weird wacky shit. That just goes into weird conspiracy left turns. I'm like, okay, sure, let's do, let's watch this. Or even like an Aaron Sorkin, who takes sort of like the sort of quote unquote grounded realistic idea and exaggerates it to these like big monologues and people screaming at each other in flowery dialect, which this movie doesn't have. It's not aiming for that, and I totally respect that. But at the same time, I still just feel like I'm not nearly as invested. And it's not the worst Bigelow movie. But I would say of, especially this late period she's had with these sort of oscar baity things, it's my least favorite of them. Because I don't feel as much of, like, her interesting stamp, as we were mentioning here, as opposed to a Hurt Locker or even Detroit. Uh, I think out of latter-day Bigelow, this is probably her weakest sort of offering. What would you want to see her do next? I'd like to see her go back to, like, genre. Not necessarily straight genre, but genre-tinged films. I, I, think, I think she's got a lot that she could maybe say or do or maybe even sort of turn the genre on its head i'd like to see her get back into that wheelhouse i wouldn't mind her especially covering maybe something slightly harder sci-fi it's something i don't think she's gone into like strange days has a bit of that but it's more in like a not too distant future kind of way i'd love to see her especially cover something like might be like a blumhouse like five million dollar lower budget like sci-fi thing that's heady but in a way that kind of fits into her themes about like brutality and stuff like that I think she could do a really good job of something in that vein. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you. 100%. Um, but I think we've said a lot about Zero Dark Three, unless you have anything to add, Adam. I really don't. I think I said it. Uh, anyway, that is the end of our discussion of our two Catherine Bigelow features. But we still have some more show to do, including our picking at the very end of the episode. So stay tuned for that. But first, we have some feedback to read. Because every Monday at DEDB Pod, we ask all of you out there, like, hey, what are your favorite, least favorite things related to whatever topic we're doing? And uh, we asked all of you about Catherine Bigelow's filmography, so we have a few people saying some things, like James Rodriguez, who says, uh, Near Dark is my favorite of Bigelow's works. Uh, the subversion of vampire tropes in a Western setting, with exceptional performances from Bill Paxton and Joshua John Miller, grips me every single time I watch it. Uh, Point Break is also wonderful as a thrilling actioner and a great commentary on the, the toxicity of bro culture. Um, as you previously covered, Strange Days is an exceptional work, which makes the 145-minute running time fly by. Um, a contrast would be uh, Bigelow's debut film, The Loveless. Makes its 82-minute runtime drag. Um, Jonathan Havid McHale says, Catherine Bigelow has a versatile filmography filled with high-concept genre and visceral drama. Uh, I don't need to repeat praise for The Hurt Locker. Point Break is so crazy that remaking it required car stunts and Corona product placement. I was so engaged with Zero Dark Thirty's first two acts that the final raid uh, felt overlong just to entertain audiences who were falling asleep. 
And then Detroit was overlooked on release and is even more appropriate with the police brutality on everyone's mind at the moment. Brian Kane says, The Hurt Locker is one of my favorite movies. Its lack of realism notwithstanding, I easily relate to characters with dangerous addictions, and there's few as dangerous as what's seen here. Uh, Larry Sternshine at Double... H55 says, uh, her best is Point Break, and I assume K19 is her worst, but I've only seen her make good films myself. And then Marcus Wilturner says, uh, since everyone is highlighting Bigelow's more notable works, which deserve it, um, I, wanted to, I wanted to take us to the hugely underrated Blue Steel, uh, which remains a compelling, authentic cop thriller that's shot amazingly and sports a powerhouse performance from Jamie Lee Curtis and Ron Silver. This one is barely mentioned, much like Detroit, another exceptionally shot drama with a plethora of standouts. Meanwhile, the worst of Catherine Bigelow's movies is definitely The Weight of Water, which was a complete, unadulterated eye-roll of a movie that ran at a snail's pace and wasn't even close to being as engaging or as, even as impactful as any of her other films, including Lovely. Uh, it's curious, Adam. Do you have any idea what Loveless is? <laughs> I, you know, no, I don't. <laughs> that was her debut. I saw this when, like I said, I went through all of her films. It's a very weird movie. Um, that kind of feels like it's it's playing on like sort of fifties bike uh, gang movies. It's the film debut of Willem Dafoe. Oh, I'm looking at it right now. I know this movie. Yeah, you've seen that poster, obviously. I've, all the I've seen. I've seen this movie. Oh, God. Very memorable movie, isn't it? Uh, I, well, it took me to see, like, nine pictures and be like, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, it, it's a movie so forgotten that when I watched it when it was on Amazon Prime at the time, there were VHS lines and points where the movie went blue and then went back to the movie. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's that low. But and interestingly enough, it, she didn't direct it by herself. Weirdly, the co-director is a guy named Monty Montgomery, who most people mm-hmm. might know as he's the guy who played the weird cowboy in Mulholland Drive, the Justin Theroses. What the fuck? I know the guy who's like, you're going to do this, and you're going to hire this girl, like that guy, <laughs> for some reason. Why? Like, it was 81. They went down very different weird paths after this, I guess. Yeah, that's amazing. It's it's really weird, yeah. Um, I don't want to watch this again, though. I'll tell you that. No, yeah. it's very dull. It's it's just it's a lot of like um, Willem Dafoe doing some weird, creepy things as a biker. And it's kind of interesting just because it's Baby Dafoe, which there isn't a lot of like pictures of, <laughs> only for really completionists. Um, and like other people have mentioned, like The Weight of Water. If you don't know, um, it's a movie that involves like, basically two couples come to a head at this like retreat that turns into like a weird like treasure hunt thing it's really dull despite what i'm saying it's like sean penn it, elizabeth hurley i, I yeah. barely remember it <laughs> and and then even like k19 as we mentioned before it's just like such a like overlong endless oh. dull movie that i every time i watched it i kept falling asleep i rewatched the last 20 minutes like maybe five times because i kept falling asleep oh i believe it i believe it i got a couple movies like that that i've had to do for this fucking show uh i thought <laughs> I think I fell asleep during K-19 The Widowmaker the first time I saw it, and I don't think I ever bothered to watch, try to watch it again. Mm-hmm. All I remember is Harrison Ford's horrible Russian accent. Yeah. It's so bad. And that's about all I remember from that movie. That's how fucking boring it is. Yeah, it's it's a real dull experience. Uh, in trivia, it was, I think, one, the first and maybe only movie financed by National Geographic which tells you how exciting that is. <laughs> I did. No, that explains like, a lot. 
I, like it's a not the I think the only non-documentary movie <laughs> that they made for a reason. And I mean, like some of the good ones I've already mentioned before. Like we'll definitely talk about Near Dark at some point in the future. We, yeah, deserves, we absolutely have. Deserves a good spot for sure on here. But you know, I'm glad that Marcus mentioned especially Blue Steel because that one gets lost in the shuffle. You've seen that one? Are you aware of that one? Yes, I have. Yeah, with Clancy Brown. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's a that's a very underrated movie. I think it also it does a lot of great stuff for like Jamie Lee Curtis. It's a different role for her. And as uh, you know, was mentioned, Ron Silver is terrifying in that movie. He's a weird like gun obsessed creep that keeps following. He's around. really good in it, man. Really fucking creepy. Really good. Really yeah. good. I always liked Ron Silver, dude. Yeah, yeah, I like Lucille a lot. I, like I said, I love Clancy Brown always. Anything, but yeah, Ron Silver's fucking kind of unnerving in it. Yes, very much so. And I think it works interestingly, like, given it's also, it's about, like, she plays a female police officer, but she loses her gun. It has a lot of interesting commentary about, like, gun obsession in particular from, like, a Ron Silver, who plays this dude who's, like, a day trader on Wall Street, but, like, he finds this gun, he becomes, like, aroused by the idea of, like, the gun. It's so interesting how she kind of handles that kind of obsession. Um, but yeah, and then we also had some other feedback related to some of our other uh, episodes in the past. Um, first off, Marcus even says about um, our last episode about 2020 films, he says, another phenomenal episode, and sorry peeps compare Thomas to Gad. Don't agree with it whatsoever. Uh, well, thank you, Marcus, because that's different from our Twitter followers, because I put up a poll <laughs> of, like, do we look similar, and everyone said yes. So, yeah, it's 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 not. Unfair. Well, I mean, majority it rules. Really Majority real clear. This Marcus is a democracy. Is to be nice, and you got to give him credit. I mean, at least he's trying to be nice. No, that's true. Yeah, it's a democracy, and uh, clearly the everyone votes for I look like Josh Gant. That's fine. It's fine. Um, but uh, another person who has a bit of uh, talk about that particular episode, uh, Joel Copling says uh, the vast of night and Artemis Fowl is such a perfect pairing of opposites, as uh, so we definitely agreed on the show with. Um, and then referencing our episode even before that, where we talked about the AFI. Uh, top 100 uh, Mallory Somerville says uh, that AFI episode was a fantastic one guys I actually cheered out loud for Adam's big reveal of his newfound Casablanca love the AFI discussion was brilliant and I'd love to hear more of that from you guys well, thank you Mallory you know I what? appreciate that yeah shut up Mallory <laughs> my cousin <laughs> I'll say what I want yeah for those underwear she is his cousin Adam's cousin yeah yeah no, she's a gem uh, and I'm glad. I'm glad to hear that she uh, that she got enjoyment out of it. It was a very good episode. Yes, it was a lot of fun to record. I would like to do more things that are kind of like weird, interesting list things like that. Um, like, I've been thinking about this one, Adam, and this is a bit like behind the curtain. I'd love to do one on the uh, Roger Ebert, like, great movies and worst movies lists that he's done. I'm down for that, for sure. I, I would love That's to, like, kind of... Fantastic. I'd love to... I'd love to do one on Criterion films. Criterion films, definitely we've discussed doing that before. Just some of these, like, what people consider, like, such highfalutin, interesting movies to, like, curate. I I like the idea of examining curated lists in particular. Me too. I think it's a great, great idea. Yes. Um, And sound off in, you know, our various feedback sections if you want to hear more of that. Or if you have a fucking list that we might not have thought of, throw it out there. For sure. Yeah, definitely. We're not going to do it, but just go ahead and throw it out here. (laughs) 
Uh, well, we want to thank you for all that feedback uh, that's provided here, and also thanks to people like Chris Oliver for the intro and outro music used in our show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Thanks to Emily Scarter for the art for our show. And uh, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook, like I said, at DEDBpod. Email us feedback, bill at gmail.com, all spelled out. And, uh, you know, if you have some money to spare, um, we would... Maybe encourage you to donate to our Patreon, where for just a dollar a month, you would be able to access things like polls to pick movies that we do for the show, or topics that we do for the show, or even some bonus podcast stuff that we do. Like, I know later in this particular month, we'll be doing our first top ten list back and forth of our favorite summer blockbusters, so that'll be fun. That is going to be a blasty blast. Yeah, I mean, and it's a dollar. I mean, it's, you know, if you don't have the money or don't feel comfortable donating, a lot of people don't like putting their money online or whatever, and, that, and that's fine. I completely understand. Or if you feel like maybe there's some other causes that might go to, we understand. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and honestly, for, for real, if you donate to the Patreon and you say, hey, guys, say you want to unlock the episodes, but you donate a dollar and you also want it to go to a certain charity, I think that might be something we can work out, too. Sure. Like, of course. Why not? Oh, real quick. I do want to bring something up real quick. So on our Patreon, for anybody who's listening, uh, I said one of the movies I would throw on the AFI is The Other Guys. Yes. I did not, I did not mean The Other Guys. I meant okay. The Nice Guys with uh, Russell Crowe and uh, Ryan Gosling. Right, right. The Shane Black film, yes. Yeah. No, I said The Other Guys, which is a funny movie. I like it. And it should not be on the top 100. Well, all those Michael Keaton references shouldn't be on the top 100, <laughs> like to, to TLC songs. Yes, yeah, of course, yeah. yeah. I'm a peacock. Yeah. You gotta let me fly. Anyways, go ahead. And you can find me doing my own individual work um, at Not the Who's Tommy on Twitter and Instagram. That's where I post uh, things. I also do some writing at MarianiThomas.wordpress.com. Uh, that's where I do my like reviews and lists and posting episodes of the show, all that. And uh, you can find Adam on the search for Osama Bin Laden. Don't tell him he's dead. He's so fixated on it. And I'll tell you what, though. I've searched a five-mile radius around my house for years, and I have yet to find that guy. He's not next to the local KFC dumpster, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> Look inside your daughter's toy box, like, where is he? I'll find you. I know my intent. <laughs> In the toilet. <laughs> you son of a bitch, you have to be here somewhere. <laughs> I'll find you. For more investigative reporting like that, uh, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and other podcasting platforms. Um, and if you're listening on the ESO network, uh, why not dig into the archives for uh, the first several episodes we did on our Podbean uh, channel? If you don't want to necessarily subscribe to the Patreon or anything, if you could just rate, review, or just share us around, that gets us more visibility, and we greatly appreciate it. Absolutely. Please do. And for if you have any tips on the whereabouts of Osama Bin Laden... Please reach out to me. <laughs> yes, please, please help Adam out. But uh, now, Adam, it's near the end of the show, and we have to do our picking for next week. And next week, we're going back to doing genre, as we love to do. And uh, this time, we're doing uh, one for gangster movies. Gangsters, guys with the guns and the and the mobs and the women and all that. Yes, but I also want to preface this by saying we don't necessarily mean just mafia. You know, organized crime movies, basically, is what we're saying. Gangster right. is just an easier way of saying it, more recognizable term. You know, it's not just, you know, movies and TV shows that kind of exhibit Italian-American stereotypes. Those are all true, but still. <laughs> Incredibly true. Every family reunion is just like a different generation. It's like, oh, there's Godfathers, 
there's uh, Goodfellas, there's Jersey Shores, that's all it is. Every family reunion. Yep, yep, the FBI is constantly raiding your house. Yeah, I'm just like, oh boys, <laughs> you're coming in now, go on, go on, come on, yeah, you won't find any contraband here. I already flushed it down the toilet. Why did you do that, Karen? <laughs> they were I don't five know! Days. I don't know! Oh, Karen! <laughs> and scene. Okay, we're good. <laughs> <laughs> that was our reenactment of Goodfellas. I do a yep. great Lorraine Bracco, as you can hear, and Adam's radio just flawless. Yeah, exactly. But now, Adam, for the love of God, we have to do our picking. And you have the two oh. good movies. You have a sign number between 1 and 10 for both of yours for your two, two Utah, two good movies. And then I've done the same for my two bad ones here. And I have a sign number between 1 and 10. And so each of us will pick number between 1 and 10 to get the other's choice, whichever that's closest to in terms of the two movies. That becomes our good and our bad feature for next episode. So, for your two good ones, I'm going to go number four. At number two, I have the Takeshi Kitano, or Beat Takeshi, or whatever you want to call him, film Brother. It's a Yakuza film. Okay, I have not seen this one. Yeah, it's like Omar Epps is in it. He's like the biggest star in it. It's a, it's Look, it's different. <laughs> But I okay. really liked it. I haven't seen it in a long time, but I remember really liking it. So that's why I picked it. Okay. So just so I get a chance to revisit it. And I also figured you'd never seen it because most people haven't. Yeah. That's pretty obscure, Adam. Uh, what was your other choice? At number eight, I had Miller's Crossing. Oh, great movie. I know, but I wanted to go something weird. I'm glad we got the weird one. Well, I mean, to be fair, Miller's Crossing is pretty fucking weird because it's Cohen. Miller's Crossing is pretty fucking weird, but it's a Cohen brother. <laughs> Yes, of course. Now, Adam. That is a goddamn good movie, though. Fuck. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but now, we have to go to the bad, Adam, for my two bad choices. Number between one and ten. I'll go number nine. Okay, well, at number seven, I had a movie I haven't seen before. I've heard a lot of uh, less than stellar things about, but I'm curious uh, because this director slash star fascinates me. And it's the one movie of his I have yet to see that he directed. It is Ben Affleck's Live by Night. Not only have I not seen this either, I've heard jack shit about it. Yeah, it was a movie that came out like the the fall after Batman v Superman. So it was like at the yep. beginning of a downturn for Ben Affleck, which is right. interesting, right? We'll, we'll get into a lot of that when we talk about it. But at number two, I had, I think, a more traditional one you might have expected of this. I have uh, 2013's Gangster Squad. Thank God I did not want to rewatch that one. Yeah, it has a lot of weird history, too. It's a movie that makes Dick Tracy look subtle. <laughs> to say the least. To say the least, yes. Uh, well, Adam, those are going to be our two picks for next week. But until then, let's get some waves. Let's catch the surf. Let's do it. Shafani? has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping through Amazon.com or the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. 
www.geekstation.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Thank you.